according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning as we get started in Proverbs 21. Picking up in Proverbs 21, we had a week off last week. I'm not a week off off, we were here, but I taught a, a special topic last week related to prophecy and politics and some of the chaos that we're living in. This morning, though, we return back to the book of Proverbs and pick up where we left off. We dealt with all of the principles of the wickedness that we have with their lamp, their violence, their soul, their house, and their sacrifice. And uh, then we talked about planning and how diligent planning beats hasty non-planning. And uh, these are the principles that we glean out of verses 5 and 6. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. And so really, all these uh, get-rich-quick schemes and all of the lies that Satan promotes where you can have it all, you can have it all now, um, that's just the cosmos wisdom and we want no part of it. God's wisdom says uh, that he expects diligence and faithfulness and uh, the, the slow and steady process that he himself engages in. You know, think about why he took uh, 4,000 years after Adam to, uh, to pr- prepare the world for the coming of the Christ and why it's been 2,000 years since the first advent and he's still getting things ready for second advent because God is not hasty and uh, we can appreciate that. All right, before we start this morning though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. We thank you for freedom that uh, still exists, that still allows us to meet. And, uh, and so here we are, Father, and we give you the praise and the glory. Thank you now for the, uh, the Word of God as we study to show ourselves approved. We, uh, we know that you will once again manifest your faithfulness through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, so in the outline then, if we had, if I have the right slide here, the wicked we dealt with in uh, main point five with the five possessions that they have, the lamp of the wicked, the violence of the wicked, the soul of the wicked, the house of the wicked, and the sacrifice of the wicked, which brought us to main point six as we dealt with the diligent planning that beats the hasty non-planning. We had some subpoints under that as well, A, B, and C. Spent some time to pay attention to Mahashava the schemes, and then the charutz for the diligent, and the mothar, the advantage. All right, so that brings us then to main point seven in the outline, the guilty man. Now there's different ways you can be guilty, you can be judicially guilty, and you can be uh, forensically guilty, you can be guilty in a lot of ways. I take this to be guilty in conscience, by virtue of the fact that he's not settled in his own mind, he's not settled in his own soul, and that gets reflected in his behavior. The guilty man, guilty in conscience, is overthrown in a perverse lifestyle. That's what he has. While the pure man has an open life with nothing to hide. And I love this here in verse 8. Verse 8 actually has a lot of vocabulary puzzles in it, some other issues, but We'll just take it uh, as the New American Standard translates it here. The way of the guilty man is crooked. And of all the different expressions for crooked, I, I kind of dislike this one. I like upside down, overthrown. It's a verb for overthrowing, as we'll show you here this morning. So the way of the guilty man is overthrown. But as for the pure, his conduct is upright. And I think it's also fun to take a look at the different terms that we have for pure and uh, some of them, uh, there's a variety of different ways that in the Hebrew you can express purity. And uh, again, there's judicial, moral, sexual, there's, there's all kinds of, of purity principles that we have in the scriptures. And uh, the vocabulary here is interesting as well. The verse is full of puzzles and it's actually one I'm not 100% content with. But we're not in an exegetical study so I don't have to be 100% on the poetry or the, or the grammar. 
Uh, just giving you the big picture ideas that we have here chapter by chapter. But still, as a contrast, we have two ways we can approach it. We can be crooked or we can be pure, right? We can have the guilty soul that's in full of turmoil because we, we're walking in darkness and we know we're walking in darkness. Or we can have the pure soul that's walking in the light and that has the faith rest blessings that go with it. That uh, we've got nothing to hide, nothing we're afraid of. We're not running from anything or trying to cover our tracks. Uh, it's, uh, it's an open life with nothing to hide. And uh, what a joy that God has provided this for us as uh, students of His Word to be able to pursue these things. There is unusual vocabulary in this verse, including hafakpak. Uh, <laughs> and I laugh just saying it out loud. Hafakpak. Okay? And it's strange. It's, uh, it actually is a, is a reduplication of the final syllable. Really the verb is hafak, H-A-P-H-A-K, hafak is the verb, which is a verb of turning, it's a verb of turning over, it's a verb of overthrow. And uh, you know, you can flip over a pancake, and I guess that's a good thing, you want to flip it over, and uh, (laughs) that's why they call them flapjacks. But you don't want to overturn your city. When your city is overthrown, that's bad, all right? And the idea of turning something upside down is a problem. And uh, so this is the the main idea of the verb, hafak. A verb, by the way, that's used almost 100 times, 94 times in the Old Testament, a variety of contexts and applications. Uh, we'll just see a, a, a short sample of them here this morning. But then when you take the, the fac, the final syllable there of the hafak, and you reduplicate it, and you end up here with hafakpak, <laughs> all right, you're just doubling the pack-pack is what you're doing. In the hafak pack, and and thankfully you only you do that once. It's the only verse in the Bible that has this hafak pack uh, noun, and uh, so we are somewhat guessing uh, on what the noun means based upon the verb and based upon some other cognate nouns that uh, that we can find. Anyway, Strong's number for this is two thousand nineteen, uh, but like I say, it's only used here, so it's a it's a pretty short word study when it comes to this particular term. Now the verb hafak, to turn or to change or to overthrow, that's got a, a, a lot of expressions and a lot of nuance as well depending on its context, depending on its uh, grammatical stem and so forth. But let's just take a look at these because these are the ones that I think are of most interest to us. Uh, and in particular, uh, since we're in a Genesis series at the moment, we're talking about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. What happens here as a consequence of their sin is that Adam and Eve get driven out that uh, they have the access to the tree of life revoked. And this is really the prime consideration for removing them from the Garden of Eden, and uh, which we can glimpse a little bit here. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So there's the statement of what has come to be, they're sinners now, there's the statement of what might be, these sinners might eat from the tree of life. And they might grant these fallen sinful bodies immortality. How horrible would that be? To be in a body of sin that cannot, that, that loses its mortality. And so uh, to keep that from happening, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove the men out at the east of the garden and stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which and here's the verb hafak, which turned every direction, okay? It's a spinning sword, it's a turning sword, it's a sword that's up and down and left and right and turned every which way. A flaming sword which turned every which way. And that's kind of cool actually, I like the, the imagery of that and a, and a sword that spins every way is, is kind of a neat thing to think about. Uh, but a life that spins every which way, a, uh, a life of of uh, being flipped upside down and turned backwards and forwards and flipped all over the place, that is not good. That is an unstable life. And that's something we want to uh, be aware of. We also have Genesis 19. What do you think of when you think of Genesis 19? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The the overthrow of the cities and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities that... uh, will be entitled to an apology, I think, very quickly if, uh, if America doesn't have a similar, <laughs> a similar judgment. I believe our wickedness is surpassing that of Sodom and Gomorrah. But here we go. And uh, as Lot and his family are escaping here, 
talking to these men. Behold, if your, uh, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be saved. And I've always pondered this passage and this prayer request, you know, when, when he's told to go one place and then he says, oh, that's too far to go, or, or well, how about this instead? And uh, the way he phrases it is, uh, is curious to me. I, I mean, I'd be tempted to say, shut up, do what you're told. I told you to go to the mountains, go to the mountains, you know. Why are you asking me about this little place? But there's got to be some doctrine connected to this. I just still haven't, uh, haven't completely dug it out yet. Anyway, so he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. So yeah, uh, I'll let you go there, and as a bonus plus, we're not going to flip this town upside down like the other towns. So hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. And the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. So the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. This is our verb. This is hafak that we're talking about. The verb hafak, by the way, Strong's number 2015, used almost 100 times, used 94 times in the Old Testament. And so the Lord overthrew hafak, these cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and uh, what grew on the ground. And then here's where Lot's wife turns back, and here's where Abraham's looking over and praying. Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. And this is a curious thing to me as well, the idea of remembrance, that uh, of course he's the omniscient God. It's not the uh, antidote to forgetfulness. Uh, God never forgets anything, but for the omniscient God to remember means that He is bringing to His particular focus, the forefront of His active thinking. That God brings Abraham to the forefront of His active thinking and consideration. And He sent Lot out of the midst of the hafak, out of the midst of the overthrow. And actually there's another cognate down there that's that's similar to hafakpak, that He uh, sent Lot out of the midst of that overthrow when he hafak overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. And so this, to me, this is a marvelous illustration. And uh, whether you want to look at the flaming sword that's spinning every which direction or the overthrow of these cities, uh, we can take those visual images and bring them back here to Proverbs uh, 21 and uh, this verse here that we're looking at in verse 8. That's the verse we're looking at. The way of the guilty man is upside down, overthrown, twisted, in turmoil, spinning like a like a cherub's flaming sword. Okay, um, it's not good. All right, and this guilt that uh, that drives this man is is uh, is the issue. Also, Proverbs twelve seven. We've had the verb hafak a couple of times already. I don't know that we stressed it very much in each of these places. Once in chapter twelve, and once in chapter seventeen. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. And they may seem that uh, they haven't made, that everything is going great in this life, and, and uh, it may seem like they're prosperous uh, tech billionaires with uh, you know, every, every great thing in life going for them. Uh, but what is the eternal destiny of these houses that are in open rebellion against uh, the sovereignty of God? It's the house of the righteous that will stand. It's our heritage that lasts forever. And we can, uh, we can rejoice in that. Proverbs 17.20 He who has the crooked mind finds no good. And he who is perverted. And the, the verb for perverted here, this is the flipped upside down. He who is perverted in his language falls into evil. How sad is it that we live in a generation where you can't even talk about what's perverted? <laughs> you know, uh, as if the idea of perversion isn't even possible anymore. Well, if you if you flip something upside down, if you violate the design, if you twist something and do something apart from the way it was intended to be done, 
then that's a perversion. It's called abnormality. And, uh, but, you know, we've lost control of the language, and when you control the language, you control the thinking, and that's, uh, that's what our adversary has done with this fallen cosmos system that we live in. Finally, Jonah. Jonah 3.4, and this is the promise for Nineveh. This is the message Jonah did not want to preach because he didn't want Nineveh to repent. But they did. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be hafak. Nineveh will be overthrown. And uh, just like you know the flapjacks and the pancakes, you're flipping them over and it's uh, not good for a city when it gets flipped over. This verse also, by the way, contains a wordplay, the wazar-wazak um, contrast, wazar-wazak for guilty and pure. And uh, so, yes, those terms are contrasted, and they're also contrasted with some um, homophones, I guess you can call it, the, the words that sound alike, uh, the, 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 the similar-sounding wazar and the similar-sounding wazak. The, the wa in the wazak is just an and, combining the zak with the, uh, with the wazar. But uh, nevertheless, they sound similar, and I guess they'd be very memorable if, uh, if I was more proficient with Hebrew than I am. But wazar, wazak, the contrast here between the guilty and the pure. And the pure has a lot of applications, I think, that we can see in, uh, in not only in Proverbs, but throughout the Scriptures. And I think... Um, what I've done here is just a contrast with the, uh, the, uh, the pure. I'm pretty sure I selected just the, the Zach applications on that. That's probably worth looking at too. Let's go to Proverbs 21.8 and I'll show you what I'm talking about here. In fact, I'll go full screen on this until we get back to our slide. All right. So yeah, here's the Ish Wazar, the man of uh, guilt, and then here's the Wazar Wazak, that uh, just homo, uh, as I, you call those homophones, right? Words that sound similar, yeah. And uh, so the idea of uh, as for the pure and the upright conduct that we have here is interesting too when you have the ideas of purity. So yeah, here's Zach. And I thought, what in the world is Zach? And it got me thinking because, um, oh, dangerous, uh, the idea of Zach because of Zakar and because of the verb to remember. And, uh, and I, I try really hard to remember, words like remember, um, since I have I've had memory issues for some time now. But the, uh, the Zakar, like in Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. And we've got other Zakar words for remembering. And, and I try to, one of the things I've always done with my Hebrew vocabulary is connect a verb with or a noun, and some Hebrew term, I've, I've connected it with a vocabulary that matches the name, because that's what the Bible does. And the woman says, I've acquired a man-child, so she names him acquired. And uh, so you can remember kana with Cain, with the name for, for Cain, and that's a little memory jog. And you find it all throughout the scriptures when, uh, when, when uh, these women are naming their babies based upon the etymology of the of the names. And so um, anyway, with Zach, that got me thinking, well, is Zach, is that related to Zechariah? It's not. Is it related to Zachar? It's not. Well, what is it related to? What's the, what's the connection here? And in particular, because uh, to me it's doubly confusing related to, um, or it was until a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the male and female, he created them. And uh, the word for the male there is the Zachar. And uh, so that got me wondering, wow, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, God is bringing me to a lot of Zachs, all right? And uh, with Zachar and Zach and his word here for pure, and the idea of a man is a man pure, is a man somebody who remembers something, is a man somebody who the Lord remembers because God himself has begotten the, um, his son. He's begotten Jesus Christ in humanity. And so when he creates man in the image of God, is, is there a reason why the language for male and female uses the, the zakir for the man? And uh, so that sent me down a few rabbit trails. <laughs> and I tell you, if you ever want to be a pastor, you're going to spend about 30 hours on something that finally is a dead end and you say, well, that's a waste of time. I can't preach that. <laughs> 
but you've learned some things along the way. And so then, uh, then uh, yeah, then you have some fun with it. So anyway, this is Zach, um, the noun here that means pure. And um, it is used 11 times. That's not a large number of times. And um, a lot of times it's translated pure. Fewer times it's translated clear. And then once it's translated clean. And if you want to see the listing of all those, you can. So in 8 out of 11 uses, Zach is rendered pure. But notice something. And how many of these times that is translated pure does it, does it get connected to frankincense? Right? Pure frankincense in Exodus. Pure frankincense in Leviticus. Um, it's not until we get to Job then that it's if you are pure and upright. My teaching is pure. My prayer is pure. I am pure without transgression. In Proverbs 20, it is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. The way of the guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. That's our text today, the one that we're looking at there. Twice it's rendered clear, but in both of those cases it's because it's connected to oil. So rather than, I guess, frankincense can be pure, oil has to be clear. Seriously? You know, they're both just Zach, whether it's Zach frankincense or Zach oil, why don't we just keep it as pure, pure frankincense, pure oil? But I guess they decided they wanted to go with clear oil and beaten olives in uh, Exodus 27 and Leviticus 24. By the way, it's the same Leviticus 24 that we had for the pure frankincense in verse 7. We have the clear oil in verse 2. Proverbs 16.2 says, all the ways of a man are Zach in his own sight. Pure, clean. All the ways of a man are Zach in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. All right, so this is, uh, these are the uses of Zach here. Another curiosity to me, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head saying, I don't know this Zach. So what's the... Uh, What's the word I learned for pure all those years ago? <laughs> Here's another rabbit trail you can go down. Your software is going to be the, the greatest blessing you'll ever use. It will also keep you enslaved for hours on end, just chasing this, chasing that, doing some of these other things. But that's okay too. So here's all the Hebrew words that are translated as pure. Quite a few of them. The dominant one here is, is uh, tahor, and as soon as I saw that, I laughed again and said, oh, that's right, I remember that. Tahor is pure. And that made me laugh for some reason. And then, and then we get Zach over here. Only eight uses there, whereas Tahor has 35 uses for pure. Anyway, more things to be done there. Let's uh, go back to what we're dealing with this morning. go. Bring that back down and bring the slide back up. So talking about Zach and uh, the purity lessons that we have. And we've already seen a couple of these just by looking at the software. Proverbs 16.2. All the ways of a man are Zach, clean, pure in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. So when we're, uh, when we are making that choice that we want to be on the upright path instead of the crooked path, when we are uh, deciding that we want to be wazak instead of wazar, we want to be pure instead of uh, crooked or wicked, that, uh, that we've got to make sure we're not simply convincing ourselves of, of the fact, saying that, oh, I'm okay with it. I'm good with my life. I think I'm pure. No, God examines us. God's the one that determines. And if we're just left to our own conscience, sometimes we get good at lying to ourselves and we get good at twisting our own uh, conscience standards to where we can, we can become content with what God's not content with. And that becomes the problem. So uh, stop using your own sight to evaluate how things are and let the, let the Lord be the judge. Let His Word be the judge. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce as far as uh, the, the joints and the marrow. It's a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So we can, uh, we can appreciate that. Proverbs 20 and verse 11. 
We saw this a moment ago. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself. If his conduct is pure and right. If his conduct is Zach and uh, Yashar. Okay? The, uh, the upright path that we have here. Same expressions. Zach and Yashar. If his conduct is pure and right. And so this is, uh, this is a marvelous thing. And we want to build this character even with the youth, even with our children. Develop the standard early. As, uh, if they get saved early, they get grounded in the Word of God early, then their conduct can be shaped by divine norms and standards. It can be shaped by, by uh, what pleases God. And, uh, and that's a good thing. And, <laughs> you know, when you talk about uh, the rich and famous, you know, let's just talk about the, the, uh, the pure and the upright. And uh, that can be the, the young children in our congregation that are walking by faith and have the childlike faith that, uh, that we're commanded to have. So we can appreciate that as well. Of course, Proverbs 21.8 is our text today. We've seen, how about Job 8.6? Look at all these references in the book of Job. And uh, the different accusations and the different defenses. This is uh, Bildad, his first shot at criticizing Job. So Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? And this was Bildad's issue. Bildad is looking at Job, and based on what he knows about God, God doesn't punish the righteous. And so if God God did this to Job, and Job is truly innocent, well then God is wrong, and, and Bildad can't go there. So He's, uh, he's, he's going on these assumptions, and the one element that Bildad hasn't, none of these critics have, have included, is the idea of undeserved suffering. That sometimes God does permit the, the horrible things to happen to the righteous, and that's not unjust on God's part, but it's, it's perfectly just as He tests His servants and He demonstrates His glory and, uh, and brings these things about. Anyway, if your sons sinned against Him, then He delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now He would rouse Himself for you and restore your righteous estate. And when you start tracking these arguments that, that Eliphaz and Zophar and, and Bildad, these guys are making, the, uh, the progression is curious because I think each one is, I don't know, there's a progression that I think gets more insidious in different ways. Notice how he brings about the children here if your sons sinned against him. So he's almost giving Job an out. He's almost giving Job an excuse to kind of, you know, you're covering for your children here, Job. Or maybe that's why, um, you know, you can give yourself an out here by blaming them and still holding fast your integrity. Anyway, how many many Christians do you know have compromised their standing on the Word of God because of the sin problems their kids have gotten into? And then they decide that, oh, well, I can adjust my theology here a little bit. Because no, the Bible says what it says, and if your sons are viol- if your sons and daughters are, are violating it, don't change your theology to <clears throat> justify the the sin that your children are walking in. Anyway, so if your conduct be pure and right, if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now He would rouse Himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. And another fallacy that some people try to turn to, they want to turn to Calvin, or they want to turn to the church fathers, they want to turn to the, you know, the reformers, or turn to Colonel Theme, which <laughs> I had to answer somebody yesterday about. That, uh, you know, if he's the uh, are, are you saying that he's God-breathed and inspired and never got anything wrong? They were saying that, but they didn't want to admit they were saying that. So then they had to say, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say that. Well, you, you did. Okay. So once we got them to admit that, then let's proceed from there. How about Job 11.4? Yeah, we can inquire past generations, but let's just recognize sometimes past generations got it wrong. So, uh, you know, we can't uh, ground our faith and in what uh, past generations had to say. Alright, Job 11.4. This is Zophar's turn now. 
Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? You know, if you can't win by the, uh, the logic, just uh, shout them down, right? Just shout louder or, or say more. Just talk so much that they don't get a chance to reply. Shall your boast silence men, and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak, and open his lips against you, and show you the secrets of wisdom? For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. And again, this is kind of a dodge, whereas, you know, um, the one guy was willing to, uh, Bildad was willing to give him a, an escape clause here with, uh, with his children, kind of blame them for part of the guilt. Uh, here, the, the dodge is, well, you're not totally wrong. I might let you be a little bit right. Um, God will forget part of your iniquity, but you've got to confess something here. All right. Uh, Job 16 and verse 17. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Here's part of his defense. How much of this do we need? I was at ease, but he shattered me. This is verse 12, Job 16, 12. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target, and his arrows surround me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall as on the ground. And this, none of this is true, but he thinks it's true. He's blaming God for all these things. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and, and thrust my horn in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. My prayer is Zach. Finally, 33.9. All right. This is Elihu, the young man that finally speaks up. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. So he's quoting Job at this point. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. And it's curious, Elihu is not rebuked at the end of the book. When, when, the, when the Lord speaks up and, and rebukes Job and Job has to pray for his friends, Job is required to become an intercessor for the three critics, but he is not commanded to be an intercessor for Elihu. Elihu is not rebuked the way that uh, the three critics are. And so it's curious to me. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? <laughs> You're not entitled to that, Job. And so again, to back up and, and, and see where Elihu is, he's quoting Job and he's not disputing the purity and the innocence, but then when Job goes so far as to say that he invents pretexts against me, that God's just making it up, that God is unfair in the judgments, that's when Job has crossed the line. I think that's a, that's a good uh, discernment to have in the book of Job. When, when we're told in chapter 1 that he did not sin, when we're told in chapter 2 that he did not sin, but then when we're told in chapter 40 that he repents, so somewhere in between there he sinned. He did something he had to repent against, something that he had to, had to respond to in, in God's judgment and God's rebuke. And uh, I think Elihu here is the key for pinpointing that. And it's this point when he starts assigning wickedness to God's own, uh, I mean inventing a pretext, seriously. All right. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? <laughs> Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when the sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, and he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Anyway, I like Elihu. He's got some good wisdom on this. All right, well, that's verse 8. Let's look at verse 9. 
Proverbs 21, 9. We're going to link verse 9 and verse 19, and you'll see why here, because they're so connected. Uh, dealing with problems at home, problems in, uh, in the marriage. And uh, verse 9 says, It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house, a wide house, a broad house, uh, shared with a contentious woman. So that's your contrast. This is the better than statement. And no matter how big the house is, when uh, the woman's out of control, who wants to be under that roof? You might as well go sit up on the roof. It is better to live in a corner of a roof. Verse uh, 19, also here in Proverbs 21. It is better to live in a desert land. That's worse than the corner of a roof. (laughs) It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. So we have an intensification from the contentious woman to the contentious and vexing woman. All right, contentions in the home. And by the way, we turn up both directions. We're not just picking on women this morning. Uh, it's uh, The woman has a similar application if it's a contentious and vexing man that as far as what's better for her, uh, it's better for any uh, believer. Um, anyway, we got the wisdom on this. Contentions in the home are worse than any alternatives we can imagine. Just try to imagine what could be worse than living in the desert? What could be worse than uh, uh, being in the corner of the roof? You know, just try to imagine what's worse than this? What's worse than this? And when your imagination can't get you uh, quite to this level, you realize this is pretty bad. Okay? The contentions within the marriage and the, uh, the woman that's apart from the Word of God here. So Proverbs 21, verses 9 and 19. We've had similar expressions uh, previously to this. We'll have more coming up. Uh, we saw this as early as chapter 12. We've got some more coming up in chapter 25 and 27. And honestly, these kind of preach themselves. Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. Okay? And and sometimes we look at these and we say, well, duh, <laughs> right? No kidding. You know, don't I want I want an excellent wife? Who who wants a, you know? And this is where again Proverbs lends itself. They're they're short, pithy statements. They are they are um, evidently true, and yet as we dwell on them, as we see the the scriptural applications that we we make, we then say, okay, so now what do I do about this? What's my well? My goal is to make sure that I'm training up my children to be the excellent, my daughters to be the excellent wife, my sons to be the young man of excellence, and the the character traits that we're seeing that are presented in these in these passages. Otherwise, it's just uh, it's a no brainer. And why is this even in the Bible? Doesn't it go without saying? Sure, it goes without saying. That's why God's saying it. <laughs> All right. So, and these are the things too, and I think we can come to appreciate them, we can come to realize, you know, when, when husbands and wives are having issues, as every marriage does, that, uh, you know, the real issue comes down to, is the husband humble under the Word of God, and is he growing? Because yeah, he's a jerk, and he's an idiot, but he's saved, and by grace through faith, he's going to grow, and uh, we show him grace to grow up. Same thing with, with the wife, that, uh, yeah, she's a sinner saved by grace, but we can uh, demonstrate the grace, and and uh, she doesn't have to be the, the one who shames or the one who contends or the vexing woman. Uh, if there's a soul issue there that needs to be adjusted by the Word of God, then let's, let's let the Word of God do the work, all right, and pray for that. And those, uh, those blessings there. Proverbs 19.13. Uh, a foolish son is destruction to his father. And the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. <laughs> drip, drip, like Chinese water torture, right? Just drip, 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 drip. When is it going to stop? Okay. Well, you know, as we love our enemies and pray for those that persecute you, including the ones in our family, we um, maybe it won't stop, you know, but it doesn't keep us from praying. And we want, uh, we want God to do His work. We want the Word of God to do its work. And, uh, and while we're waiting for those things to unfold, because uh, we're so impatient, we, um, we just continue by faith and trust that God knows what He's doing. And in some of these things too, it's interesting with, um, 
<laughs> when you have adult children. I mean, when they're small and spankable, that's the, that's the easy part. And then uh, when they're adult or when they're out of the house and when they're, you know, man, and then you realize uh, what, what a fervent, effectual prayer life is all about. And you realize what your parents did for you all those years ago and then these things that come up. Anyway, and so um, I think the, uh, the, the wisdom of Elihu would apply here as well. Why are we, uh, we, we keep asking these why questions instead of just simply trusting that God knows what He's doing and, uh, and, and loving them and praying for them and, and asking for their growth. You know, I mean, what's the real request? Make the, make the dripping stop or transform this contentious woman to, uh, to a degree where she loves the Lord and loves the Word and she herself is mature and grown and I mean, and then if, if that, once that's accomplished, then you bet the drippings will stop. That's kind of a side effect. So quit complaining about what a rotten wife she is and start ministering to her. Start washing her with the Word. Start praying for her more. And it uh, might be that this whole test isn't even about her anyway, that God prolonged it to, to get you in line. So uh, wake up your prayer life and, and, uh, and those issues there, or vice versa. Okay. Uh, Proverbs twenty five twenty four. This is almost word for word like our verse today in Proverbs 21.9. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So yeah, now in the, in the, the rooftops were used for a lot of things. They could store grain and that's where Rahab hid the spies because she had stalks of, of flax that were drying up there on the roof and, and uh, they used their roof for a lot of, a lot of functions. And to have one little corner up there, today we would say sleeping in the doghouse or we would say, uh, you know, you're on the couch or whatever because uh, she's not, uh, not happy with the husband. Those kind of things. Chapter 27. I'm happy to say I've never slept in a doghouse. 29 years of marriage, mostly because we've never had a doghouse. <laughs> we've never had a dog. Sharon's allergic to dogs. So. A constant dripping this is uh, Proverbs 27, 15, and 16. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind, so good luck with that, and grasps oil with his right hand. <laughs> okay. Is that any better than your left hand? You know, try, you know, just trying to grasp it. All right. You know, and sometimes, yeah, we have these issues and we think we can fix them. And uh, no, we can just pray for him and ask God to do the work. Then the scoffer. Let's look at verse 11. Wow, we're covering some ground this morning. We did verse 7, no, verse 8, with the guilty man and the crooked. We did verse 9, the corner of the roof. Why are we skipping verse 10? Because we already covered it. It's already as part of the, uh, the Of the Wicked series that we did, because that's the soul of the wicked. All right, verse 11. When the scoffer is punished, the naive become wise. When the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. This is a character that we saw previously in chapter 19, the scoffer, the, pu the punished scoffer. The punished scoffer was seen in Proverbs 19, he was called the stricken scoffer there, uh, receiving blows on the back. And he needed blows on the back. He needed that correction, that discipline. And it may be that he himself is hopeless, but there's going to be others that are going to be helped by that example. If you don't set the example, then you're actually rewarding that behavior and get more of it. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing this played out in the news every night. We're seeing behavior that's not punished. Instead, it's winked at and it's rewarded. And uh, we see prosecutors, instead of pressing charges, they're dropping charges. And we see in the rare event that an arrest does get made, uh, that they're being released as soon as the, as soon as the, the uh, crooked DAs can let them go because they want these hoodlums back on the street with more mayhem. And so if you don't punish the behavior, you get more of it. I don't know if you remember this from back in Proverbs 19, but verse 25 and 29 here. Strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd. So the scoffer and the naive, those are two different characters. Pethy is the naive, we've studied him many times. But the scoffer 
Lates is the Hebrew there. You're striking lates and pethy pays attention. <laughs> he goes, ooh, I don't want that. So strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding and he will gain knowledge. Down to verse 29 of the same chapter. Judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. This uh, To have the uh, judicial condemnation here, to have the blows as a consequence. Something that does not, ha- does not happen anymore under Texas law or federal law or in our modern American uh, judicial system. And because um, we've, we've evolved, <laughs> right? We've, we've, we've gone all modern and postmodern and, and secular. We think we know better now. We think that uh, corporal discipline is barbaric. And yet um, these blows, Scripture says these blows are functional. These blows are effective. These blows um, are, are, uh, are, are beneficial for the back of fools. You know, and you talk about, now we're not talking about brutality. We're not talking about, um, I'm not dreaming for the days that we can bring back, uh, you know, slavery or bring back something um, horrendous. But what I am talking about, though, is the legitimate application of corporal punishment. That it is biblical, just like capital punishment is biblical. That the rod is, uh, is acceptable in God's sight. It's not cruel and unusual punishment. Because the same people who wrote cruel and unusual punishment in the Constitution were the same people who felt that the stocks were not cruel and unusual punishment. The public stocks in the, in the town square. Or that uh, a lashing was not cruel and unusual punishment. That uh, the, the, the beating was appropriate. And military discipline had it in the Navy, the Army, um, up until modern times. Anyway, am I advocating that we return back to it? If we did, we would be more biblical than we are now. Okay? Anyway, blows on the back. I tell you, that, uh, that American kid that went to Singapore with the spray paint and had the graffiti thing, and then uh, the Singapore, uh, you know, they assigned the, the lashes to his, to his backside. And... Uh, <laughs> Remember that in the news and all the scandal and all, oh, you know, don't do that and whatever. And hey, you broke Singapore law in Singapore. What do you expect? And uh, he did. He got the caning. He got the caning that, uh, that the Singapore law assigned to him. And, uh, and, and you know what? He never went back to Singapore again, did he? <laughs> it fixed the graffiti issue, not only for him, but everybody else looked at his example and, and realized, you know, they, they don't mess around. We had a, um, and I've told the story before, but in Saudi Arabia, um, and, and, and I can't swear to the truth of this because I didn't see it happen, I just know what I was told, that uh, we had our MPs were, were uh, uh, providing security for Arab drivers on, on different trucking routes, and we had a female MP in a truck with an Arab driver who reached over and fondled, fondled her, her breast while they were in the truck. Anyway, she uh, pulled out her service revolver and held him off and got to where we were going and, and um, anyway, reported him and his hand was chopped off according to the, the story that we were told that uh, with much apologies that the, the Saudis, um, uh, you know, uh, took care of it. <laughs> and we learned a lesson, whether it was true or not, that's just what we were told. And uh, I don't know, I believe it. I'll believe it, you know, for the rest of my life because that's, that's kind of their system. That's the the Muslim law under Sharia, and uh, anyway. So the, the blows to the back, they are effective. The scoffer himself is hopeless, but his example may help others. Let's run through these and wrap this up here this morning. Proverbs 9, 7, 7 and 8. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Sometimes you're not getting anywhere with the particular guy you're, uh, you're uh, addressing. Do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So yeah, the blows may not do anything for him. But somebody else watching those blows, they may be the ones who learn. Proverbs 13.1 
A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Part of the problem here with Lates is that he knows everything. And if you're a know-it-all, what can anybody tell you? How do you learn anything? A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Proverbs 17.10 A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. One sharp rebuke to a, to a humble believer, to a humble believer that has wisdom, that, that, is, uh, uh, that identifies with the authority of the Word of God in their life. If, if they're humble before the Word of God, just one short, simple rebuke, one Bible verse quoted, one, one little reminder is all you really need. And then immediately it's just effective, it just convicts, it just grabs hold of that believer in their soul and they know, that's right, I, I needed that, thank you for that. And yet, on the other hand, you can, you can whoop up on this, this guy a hundred times and a hundred blows to the, uh, to the fool and it just doesn't sink in. But his example may help others. And I think that's what we got there in Proverbs 21.11. When the scoffer is punished, the naive become wise. Somebody else watching that looks at the example and goes, ooh, I better shape up. I don't, uh, I don't want to head down that path. All right, well, we'll pick up here next week then. That was good. We, we need to do this every Wednesday. We can, we can get through this. I'm still keeping an eye on the, the pacing as we work our way through these chapters. I don't know that we can get through uh, chapter 24 by the end of next year. But anyway, God's in charge of that too. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that you open our eyes and bless us. Continue to bless us with not only what the Word says, what it means, and, uh, and, and what we're expected to do with it, Father. How do we make our application in a way that glorifies your Son? I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.